people should be paying attention to who gets to make decisions. When organizations are incredibly rigid in terms of their hierarchy, and we know so many organizations are not particularly diverse at the top, then we have to look at what are the informal ways in which we can bring people with different perspectives to the table in terms of the decisions that need to be made about the business. The second thing to think about is information and transparency. So organizations that typically hold things very private or very sort of need to know and nobody needs to know can be full of bias because we're not giving access to information. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. One of the most common go-to strategies that companies use to advance diversity and inclusion is diversity training like unconscious bias training. However, there's a growing body of research that demonstrates just how ineffective unconscious bias training is. A longitudinal study found that traditional diversity trainings are the least effective at increasing numbers of underrepresented minorities. And experimental research has shown that presenting evidence that people commonly rely on stereotypes isn't actually helpful, and it can even condone the use of stereotypes. When we tell people that they're biased and that these biases are unconscious, it encourages people to believe that there's nothing they can do about it because it's unconscious after all. So how can we fix this? Well, the aim is to enable employees to become conscious decision makers so that they're aware of their biases and know how to overcome them in decision-making processes. To explore how we can make this shift, Pamela Fuller, a Franklin Covey thought leader and co-author of the upcoming The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection and Create High-Performing Teams, will share how we can overcome our unconscious biases, why some of the greatest biases we hold actually don't serve us, and what we can do to create more effective and equitable decisions at work. Unconscious biases are the social stereotypes we hold about certain groups of people that are outside our own conscious awareness. Everyone holds unconscious beliefs about various social and identity groups. We form these beliefs to help organize information and process our social world. Unconscious bias is far more prevalent than conscious prejudice, and often it's incompatible with our own values. Certain scenarios can activate unconscious attitudes and beliefs. For example, biases might be more prevalent when multitasking or working under time pressure. Here Pamela shares one of the most common biases that most people have. I think the most common bias that you hear about that you see is affinity bias, right? Or in-group bias. And it is this idea that because people are like me, whether they're like me because of some facet of my identity or we have similar experience or we look at problems the same way, then I have natural affinity towards them. And I identify their potential. I see their greatness, right? 71% of leaders select protégés of the same race and gender. 
And when we look at working to diversify organizations, particularly up the leadership chain, our goal is to really hijack that statistic, right? To sort of turn on its head how we identify potential. So in my work, I talk about two big ideas for how we do that. The first is really recognizing the intrinsic relationship between the biases we hold and our own identity. It is this sort of act of recognizing what your own values and preferences are and being able to compare that to how you identify potential in your team. So I'll give you an example of that. I have a colleague who, whenever she um, describes a woman as ambitious, she sort of whispers it, right? She says, so-and-so is very ambitious, as if it's a four-letter word, right? As if it's a bad thing. Whereas I very proudly identify as ambitious, right? And what does that mean for the way that the two of us might manage an employee who we see as ambitious? So I think quite often we take our own lens and our own values and we overlay them on other people. And there's bias in that, right? That we recognizing that we don't all have to do things the same way. The second sort of big idea is the neuroscience of bias, that when we are overwhelmed, when we have high emotion about a circumstance or when we feel under duress, we're more likely to lean into bias or convenient thinking, right? We, give, we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We're short and impatient with them. We lean into our assumptions about their capability or their intent, um, and those are often negative. And so I think for leaders to develop some mindfulness and create space in their calendars, you know, quite literal space, before they have important meetings, important conversations, before decisions need to be made, then they can recognize when they might be falling into sort of convenient thinking because of those emotions versus really logical thinking about the facts in front of them. Unconscious bias has become a popular topic in the diversity and inclusion field over the years. But you can't reduce bias and prejudice by simply explaining the psychology of it to people. A 2019 review of diversity and inclusion practices published by the CIPD has called into question the impact of diversity training in fostering inclusive workplaces. The Diversity Management That Works report found that while diversity training did increase awareness, it had very little impact on attitude and behavioral change. I think that the unintentional consequence of unconscious bias or implicit bias or cognitive bias training, right, these sort of interchangeable words, is that the thrust of these programs has historically been to devilify bias, right? So the whole purpose is to help people feel comfortable with the reality that to be human is to have bias, that if I have bias, if I were to say I didn't have bias, I would be saying my brain doesn't function properly, right? It's just a natural part of how our brain works. And then so much training sort of ends there. So, you know, we've had a one hour session or a couple hour session where we recognize that we have biases and we do some activities around mental shortcuts and the sort of, you know, illusions that our brain can trick us into seeing something that's not really there or might not see something that's there if we're focusing on something else, right? It's those kinds of exercises. And you come out of the other side feeling really good about the fact that your brain functions properly and you have bias. And so I think what is really critical is that we reframe the conversation around bias and any learning that is happening around bias to be more robust and more comprehensive so that we're not simply saying, you know, bias is a natural part of the human condition, which it is, but we're saying, and it has real impact on the performance of your people and how we identify potential 
right? That we signal to people whether they belong in an organization, whether their ideas are valued, whether we care what they think and what their experience is like. And that has real impact into their experience and the results that you're trying to achieve. And here are some strategies and skills to ensure that you are recognizing the biases that you hold, sort of reframing your decision-making lens. That you, of course, as a leader, have expertise and education and experience that um, supports your decision-making. But are you asking this additional question? What biases do I have that could be impacting this decision or the way that I'm seeing this circumstance or situation? To ensure unconscious bias training is effective, it's critical that participants connect to the work through a process called perspective taking. Research finds that these training programs are more impactful when participants make the connection between their behavior and the disadvantages and discrimination that different groups face through reflecting on the experiences of other people and listening to their stories. Here, Pamela shares practical actions that every leader can take to combat bias. I think that people should be paying attention to who gets to make decisions. So there are opportunities to be more democratic, if you will, in terms of who gets a seat at the decision-making table, that when organizations are incredibly rigid in terms of their hierarchy, and we know so many organizations are not particularly diverse at the top, then we have to look at what are the informal ways in which we can bring high potential leaders or people with different perspectives to the table in terms of the decisions that need to be made about the business. I think the second thing to think about is information and transparency. Right. So organizations that typically hold things very private or very sort of need to know and nobody needs to know can be full of bias because we're not, again, giving access to information. So I think information and transparency is really important. So as a leader and as an organization, thinking about who gets access to information, right? Information is how someone grows in their career, right? And that transparency is really important to sort of expand access to opportunity. Um, Who knows about new opportunities that might be coming? Who knows about potential sort of strategic shifts in direction that might lend themselves to additional opportunity? I think when information is very closely guarded and limited to um, people who've been tapped as worthy of having that information, it just reinforces the biases that exist in the organization. One of the things that never seems to get talked about is how we hold negative biases about ourselves. For example, how many of us are aware of the negative beliefs that we hold about ourselves and understand how this limits our effectiveness at work? Here, Pamela shares why self-limiting biases might be the most important ones to overcome. You know, it's so interesting. I share an example in the book of speaking with um, early in my career at Franklin Covey, there was a vice president um, announced and she was the youngest vice president in the company's history, I believe. And so I was in Salt Lake City where a company is headquartered and asked her if she had some time to have dinner with me. And I talked to her about all the ways in which I'm difficult to work with and really tough and unlikable and all these things for like 15 minutes and she, her jaw dropped and she looked at me and was like, that is not the impression 
that we have of you at headquarters, right? In preparation for this meeting, I asked a couple people about their experience with you and got a totally different image. And it's a great example of self-limiting bias that I had had previous employment experiences where I felt like or was made to believe that I was really difficult, that I was unlikable, that I was uh, too intense or whatever, too something, right? Too black, too young, too much of a woman, right? All the things. And I carried that with me into this new role, even though I had no evidence that that was the case, right? And I think that's the reality of self-limiting bias is that we start to see ourselves through this negative lens whether that is signals that society gives us or signals that the organization gives us or signals that individual people give us, right? And feedback that they give us that is more about their own biases than the actual reality that we're in. And so that can become incredibly self-limiting. And the way to sort of move past that is to really recenter yourself, right? When you start to see yourself through this negative lens, it basically pushes you out of your own narrative. And so some of the strategies I recommend for moving past self-limiting bias are first to get a confidant, right? And a mentor and a coach, people who know you well or get to know you and can recalibrate any negative visions that you have, right? They can give you sort of an objective third-party view of the circumstance and how you're perceived. I think prioritizing self-care is really important. I think in the time of COVID, it's, it feels almost impossible at times because your work and home are so merged now. But you know, we hear self-care and we think it's manicures and pedicures, but it really has its roots in activism, right? Audre Lorde said that self-care is an act of self-preservation and that's an act of political warfare. And so I think creating some space between whatever the work circumstance is and these self-limiting beliefs Creating some space for yourself to recenter and reprioritize is really critical and important. And I think joining communities that are more similar to you, right? If you start to feel limited because of some facet of your identity, is there a community that exists or a network that you can tap into that recenters your narrative, right? And makes it positive. Finally, Pamela shares three actions that every leader can take to build a more inclusive culture and overcome the most common pitfalls associated with unconscious bias. Leaders need to think very intentionally about the kind of information and stories that they're consuming and ensuring that they're building this lens of inclusion. That, you know, you might not know people from different backgrounds, but those stories are available. They're available via media, um, TV, and podcasts, and stories that are written online, and they should explore that and dedicate some time to that. The second thing I think is really important is a real examination as a leader of your network. You know, who is your go-to cadre for projects when something exciting comes down the pike? Who do you go to for mentoring and coaching and to solve big, hairy problems? And who comes to you for those things? And where is there opportunity for you to expand that? Because the reality is that the people on your team who are your go-to people become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They have exponentially more access to your time. They have exponentially more access into your thinking, into the strategy of the business. And they're aware of opportunities before the rest of the team because they've got this special relationship with you. So where is there opportunity for you to expand your network and reach into some of that untapped potential. And the third thing I think is from an advocate lens, right? What bold thing can you do? I mean, 
the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And we've been talking about diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion for decades, and nothing has really changed. And so I think it's incumbent on every leader to say, what bold thing am I going to do? What stroke of the pen thing am I going to do? When I'm hiring for a position and I get an applicant pool that is not a diverse slate of candidates, am I willing to throw it back? Am I willing to say, look, this position is going to have to be vacant for longer because I'm not even going to consider a candidate unless you can bring me a diverse applicant pool, right? Or when the organization has succession planning initiatives, as a leader, can you declare that you will ensure gender and racial diversity in your own succession plan, right? If I'm required to have two people sort of in my line of sight for succession planning, Can I ensure that one is a man and one is a woman? Can I ensure that there's some racial diversity between these two candidates, right? So I think the third thing is an actual commitment to action, right? What is a leader willing to commit to that will make movement or forward progress as it relates to diversity and inclusion? I think that we all know exactly what it feels like to be marginalized, right? Whether that is about some facet of our identity or some idea we have that wasn't picked up or a strategy that we stood behind that wasn't selected, right? Or isn't the direction we're trying to go in or just a a boss with poor management skills, right? We all know exactly what it feels like to be marginalized. And in order for organizations to achieve results, they can have the best strategy, they can have the best products, right? But people have to do those things. There's nothing more fundamental to human performance than how we relate to one another as human beings. And so recognizing that the discretionary effort that you require from your people in order to achieve results can only be achieved if they all feel a sense of belonging, that they feel respected, included, and valued. enjoyed speaking with Pamela because she provided so many practical strategies that each of us can use to navigate bias at work. Importantly though, she made me think about the ways that I'm biased against myself and why it's so important for me to manage my self-limiting beliefs. If we can pay attention to the negative beliefs that we hold about ourselves and change our behaviours to better manage those beliefs, then surely we can do the same when it comes to our colleagues at work. Unconscious bias training will never be enough. The real work is to put that awareness into practice and pay attention to the decisions you make and why you make them. This is how we overcome the limiting beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. Before you go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn how gender inequality works, what the 17 most common barriers are that all women face, and how gender inequality creates barriers to men's fulfillment of work. Most importantly, you'll learn what you can do to navigate these obstacles and how we can begin to make workplaces work for everyone. So get your copy today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.